Amen. Well, good evening. I'm excited to be with you. Um, if I hadn't met you, my name is Micah. Uh, stop me when we're done. I'd love to shake your hand. Um, so tonight, uh, I'm excited to talk about a subject that for a while, well, pretty much since a long time, um, it's been near and dear to my heart. But for the past year, uh, it's really taken, a, taken, taken hold um, and that's the idea of being the coach God wants you to be, God needs you to be, God desires us to be, and how do we get to be that coach? Um, with a coach in general in the sports world, how do we define a coach's success? So if we're going to define the success of a coach, what do we do? How do we define that? Wins. Wins and losses. It's the easiest thing, right? Wins and losses. How many championships they have. Uh, what conference they're in, how long they stay in that conference, the longevity of that conference. So if you're in high school and you want to find the success of a coach, it could be how many players you get to the next level. If you play high school football, you're going to go play in Katy because Katy produces athletes. So they're getting guys to the next level, unless you're playing for Spike and then you're going to the next level anyway. Um, so in high school, it's getting players to the next level. In college, the success of a coach, getting them to the pros no matter the sport, getting to the pros, or the graduation rate, which is big. I'm going to send my kid to a school where I know that coach is going to make him go to school and he's going to graduate. So in the college, we can do it that way. In the pros, it could be, you know, how many, how many pro bowlers will go football? How many pro bowlers am I coaching? How many Hall of Famers am I coaching? Am I getting the most I can get out of this talent? Can I push them over and beyond the talent they have to get them to that next level? We can judge all those ways to see how, um, how a coach is judged and how we can, can put him on that scale. But I'm going to offer a different idea of how to judge a coach, and that's through a coaching tree. So you might know what a coaching tree is. So a coaching tree is you have your head coach who's the coach of the team, and then he has all of his assistant coaches. Well, the goal of a head coach is to produce great assistant coaches who then go out and leave and then become head coaches elsewhere. I'll give you two examples. The first example is, uh, is Bill Walsh. He is before my time, but some of y'all might know who he is. He is a three-time Super Bowl champion, a two-time NFL Coach of the Year, the NFL 80s All-Decade Team, the Pac-8 Coach of the Year, and the accolades for this man keep going on and on and on. The guy was a fantastic coach. But looking at his coaching tree, these are all the guys who are head coaches who coached under Bill Walsh. In 1998, there are 30 teams in the NFL. 15 of them, the head coaches coached under Bill Walsh at one time. That coaching tree is phenomenal. Of those 15, six Super Bowl champions are under his tutelage of his coaching tree. I will consider Bill Walsh forget all of his accolades personally, that's a successful coach. He knew what he was doing. Another example is a guy who won the national championship game last month, and that would be Nick Saban. Nick Saban has six national championships, one MAC championship, seven SEC championships, and 11 SEC West championships. Those are big numbers, especially in the SEC. Nick Saban's coaching tree. This is as of 2016. Um, he knows what he's doing. A little outdated, Jimbo Fisher is no longer with Florida State. He is making big bucks at A&M. Uh, Jason Garrett, didn't realize he coached for Nick Saban, is now coaching of the Cow uh, coach of the Cowboys. So you see this guy, he has 16, I think it's 14 up there, uh, 14 head coaches since 2016 that were under Nick Saban. 
He knows what he's doing. He has a coaching tree. It's not just about Nick Saban. He is developing guys, sending them out. So why do I talk about a coaching tree? Why do I mention a coaching tree? When it comes to coaches, when we boil down to the, to the nitty-gritty, what do coaches do? At the very base level, what do coaches do? They teach. They teach. Bottom line, they teach. If I come to you and I say, hey, you want to teach a second-grade class on Sunday morning? First response would be, oh, no, I can't teach second-graders. You have a new guy in your, in your work. Hey, you want to go teach whatever his name is, the, the craft of the trade? Oh, I'm not a teacher. I can't do that. Hey, you want to coach? You want to coach this second-grade team? Oh, I can coach. You want to coach this guy who's fresh out of college and he's at your profession? You want to coach him up how to be the best at his profession? Oh, I can do that. Teach? I can't do that. But I can coach. So tonight I want to change our mindset of how we teach our kids or someone in your circle of influence or your sphere of influence. So it's not all about kids. How we teach them, change that to how we coach them. A coach teaches and a coach trains. So how we train our kids, how we train those who work for us, how we train those that we're mentoring. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to be in Deuteronomy tonight. Uh, But before we get to Deuteronomy, just a history lesson of where we're at before we're in Deuteronomy 6, the Israelites. So Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch is the book of law written by Moses. So it's the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So up until this point, the Israelites that he will be talking to in chapter 6, what have they seen? Well, they've seen the birth of Moses, which was crazy in the Nile and all that kind of stuff. They saw Moses rise in Pharaoh's house. They saw him leave and go into the wilderness. They saw him come back, and he goes to Pharaoh and he says, what? Hey, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Okay, then God says, hey, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you my majesty and my wonder and all of my signs, and I'm going to bring you 12 plagues. Interesting about those 12 plagues is those 12 plagues attacked every major god of the Egyptian god system. So they, were, um, they worshiped a ton of gods. So all 12 plagues attacked a specific god of Egyptian culture. We get to the 12th plague, which is the, the plague of the, uh, the, the death angel, right? And every firstborn child died unless what? Blood was over the doorpost, right? So the, so the death angel comes through and kills all the firstborn children in Egypt. And at that point, Pharaoh is, is just, just completely upset. He says, hey, get out of here. Go, leave. So Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. And when they're leaving, the, the Exodus tells us that the Israelites took everything. If it wasn't bolted down, they were taking it. It's like uh, my wife and I just had a baby. He's three months old. And as we were leaving the hospital, uh, the, the nurses said, hey, you take everything. Take everything. I was like, even the TV? Like, it's bolted down. But you take everything else you want. So that's what the Egyptians did. They took everything. Gold, silver, clothing, plates, took it all. So they're going out into the wilderness. They're led by day by by a pillar of cloud and by night by fire. They're seeing the majesty of God. They get to this sea and they start to freak out. Because what happened? Pharaoh, back in Egypt, said, my entire slave force just left. We're in trouble. So let's go after him. So he grabs his entire army, and he goes after the, uh, the Israelites, and they get to this water. So Israel sees water here. We can't go anywhere. And they see the Egyptians over here. And what's the first thing they do? They complain, right? 
They say, hey, are there not enough, are there not enough uh, graves in Egypt? We have to come out to the desert to die? They saw a God who just did all the 12 plagues, and the first thing they do is complain. So God tells Moses, hey, take your staff, raise your staff, and when you raise your staff, the Red Sea's going to part. And when it parts, you're going to walk right through it. This has nothing to do with the lesson, but we serve a God that if we step out in faith, we step out in faith on what? Dry ground. Exodus tells us that when the Israelites walked through the Red Sea, it wasn't muddy. It wasn't damp. It wasn't even somewhat wet. It was dry ground. That's the God we serve. So when we step out in faith, we're stepping out on dry ground. So they walk through the the Red Sea, and as the Israelites finish, we know the waters come down and take out the entire Egyptian army. If you think that's fake, archaeologists today are finding evidence of chariots and battle uh, weapons in the Red Sea. So again, Scripture we can tell is real. So they get through the desert place, they get through the Red Sea, and then they start to complain again. Why are they complaining now? Because they're hungry. They're thirsty. What does God do? Provides manna and quail. And it provides water coming out of rocks. Every morning they got manna and quail. Every morning we have to go to God. Every morning the manna and quail was gone. As the dew melted off, so did the food. So every morning we have to go to God. So we get to this point in Deuteronomy. That's everything the Israelites have seen. So they've seen the wonders. They've seen the mighty works. They've seen the all if that's even a word, of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we're going to be. So as we begin this idea of being a coach and coaching those around us, coaching our kids, coaching those who are in our sphere of influence, remember this coaching tree idea. So we're going to read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So the first thing we need to know is that training kids, and it doesn't have to be kids, it can be anybody in your circle of influence, but we'll focus on kids for for the purpose. Training kids starts with their parents. Training kids starts with their parents. And the first point of that is truth cannot be communicated through us until it happens to us. I'll say that again. Truth cannot be communicated through us until it happens to us. The you in that passage there is referring to or talking about parents grandparents, or anyone that has a sphere of influence over someone else. So if you don't have kids, this pertains to you, because you have somebody in your life that you're a sphere of influence over. If you've got grandkids, you have a sphere of influence on them. If you have kids, obviously this pertains to you. So the you there is talking about that. If we remember in the New Testament, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of the Old Testament, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. He's, he's copying word for word Deuteronomy. So this passage is vitally important because Jesus said, hey, this is the most important commandment of the Old Testament. So verse four through six. The second thing on this point is we cannot teach our kids a value if we don't adopt it first. 
We cannot teach our kids or those that we are influencing over a value if we don't adopt it first. Practice what you preach. Simple as that. Practice what you preach. Uh, It was really hard for me growing up to play for a coach that weighed like 450 pounds and was making me do sprints. So I'm there going, hey, man, you going to come join us? You need, to, you need to lose a little weight too. It was hard for me to work for that coach or that coach that had no idea what he was doing. It was hard for me to play for that coach because he didn't practice what he preached. Practice what you preach. We can't teach our kids a value if we don't adopt it first. There's a warning that goes with this and the warning is don't let religious rules take the place of authentic Christian life. What does that mean? Don't let religious rules take the place of authentic Christian life. It's not just about enforcing a set of rules. It's not just about taking your Bible and beating it over your kid's head. It's not about taking your Bible and beating it over whoever you're over said, hey, you're doing it wrong because the Bible says so. Now live that authentic Christian life and they'll see the difference. It's not about religious rules. Your kids, coworkers, whoever you're over, they'll, know, they'll, they'll truly know the love of God if you're living the authentic Christian life. If you're just living practical religious rules, they'll, they'll see you're a fake. They'll know something's wrong with you. They'll know something's off. Because kids can see right through you. Kids can see a fake, especially high school kids, can see a fake from a mile away. So we have to live the authentic Christian life. Now we're gonna do something a little different tonight is that we're gonna, each, after each point, we're gonna be in your group and you're gonna talk about the, the discussion questions here. So at this point, um, if you'll go to your group and just take for a few minutes to talk about the balance between living the authentic Christian life and religious rules. Because there's a balance there. We have to be able to, to live both those lives. So in your group for the next two or three minutes, just talk about the difference between living authentic Christian life and religious rules. Go ahead and go. All right, we'll bring it back in. So we, we, we've established and decided that in order to build our coaching tree, in order to start thinking that way, foundationally, obviously, it starts with Christ. That, that's, that's a non-negotiable. But in order to begin to build that tree, it has to start with us. The foundation has to start with us, especially as men. has to start with us. So as we begin to coach and train our kids or those under our guidance we have to realize that once we begin to start growing that tree, how does that tree grow? How do we begin to grow that tree of influence or that coaching tree? And the point number two is training kids requires the conscious and constant transfer of truth to them. We'll read verse seven through nine. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk to them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your head, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So again, training kids requires the conscious and constant transfer of truth to them. What does that mean? We must teach through diligent action and not passive supplements. Teach through diligent action and not passive supplements. It's not, hey, I'm gonna bring my kid to church and let church deal with it. 
It's not, hey, in the workplace, I'm going to be the guy that prays, and that's it. It takes an action. It's not, hey, we're going to listen to KSBJ in the car because that's what God would want me to do. And we stop it right there. That's a passive supplement. It's not an active action. If we just get them here, that's all we need to do. In Jumpstart, uh, which is first through third grade, when, uh, when Eric Albert um, goes through Jumpstart, when I teach Jumpstart, we tell the kids, hey, get, get your friends to church, and we'll tell them about Jesus. Well, who's going to tell them about Jesus? Us. The passage says that no longer drink milk, it's time to eat some meat. So as men, it's time to step up and no longer be passive in our supplements, but be active in our action. So it's more than just getting them here. We have to teach them when they're here. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, the first one that we see in the passage is to talk to them, is to talk. Know what interests your kids. Know what interests those around you and learn about it. I hope and pray that my son, who's three months old, grows up to be 6'4", 240 pounds, chiseled as a Greek god, and is a stud wide receiver. But he'll probably play the oboe and be that big. I will have to learn everything about the oboe, and I will have to have a conversation with my son about whatever he's passionate about. I hope it's sports, but it could be something completely different. But I want to have that communication. I want to have that connection with my son. So I'm going to have to learn whatever it is. I hope and pray it's sports, but it couldn't be. It might not be. It might be he might love to sing. He might be a mathematician and I'm in trouble. He might be the best, you know, quote-unquote school nerd you can find, and I'm going to have to do some reading. But I hope to be able to understand what my son loves so I can have a conversation with him. Are you doing that with your kids? With those that you're a, a circle of sphere over, the guys you work for, are you knowing what their interests, what their hobbies are? The next one is sitting. At the dinner table, this is a great place to do that. This is a great place to sit around the dinner table and, and talk with your kids. Uh, my wife and I, Ann, we try to have two to three times a week, we try to have a couple or couples in our house over for dinner. It's hard. With a three-month-old, it's really hard. We both work full-time. Our house is a mess because we got baby stuff everywhere. It doesn't matter. When we get people in our house and we talk to them, the walls come down. You're able to have true community and true fellowship with people. So I encourage you, whether you have kids or don't have kids, have people in your home because you're able to talk to them. You're able to share a meal with them. They don't care if your house is clean. I mean, don't be a hoarder, but they don't care if your house is clean. Just have them in your home. Just talk with them. Hang out with them. Um, I learned this one from Mark Terry. Uh, he, especially during the wintertime, he has a fire pit in his backyard. And when his kids were younger, he would just, without his kids knowing, he would go outside, would start a fire, and would just sit there. Within 30 minutes, he had both his kids out there. And he said they would be out there for hours. And they would talk to him about everything from their day at school to what they're struggling with. And he didn't have to say a word. He just sat there. So find things that your kids like to do, like to talk to you about, or the guys that you're over. Find things like to do, and they'll come talk to you. So talking is a big one. Uh, walking. Walking's the next one. We don't walk anymore. We drive places. We take an Uber places. If we're going on a tour of a new city, we take a Segway. We don't walk. In Bible times, they walked. So what can we do to walk with our kids or walk with those around us? Go to the mall. Don't just drop your kids off. Go to the mall and walk with them. Go to East End Park. Just walk with them. It's amazing what will happen when we get alone and we just talk to people because they'll open up. Even the biggest shell, they'll open up. I like to play golf, 
And so I'll take guys golfing. It's amazing what conversations you have when you're golfing because the guard is down, we're out in nature, we're having fun, we're golfing. When I go play golf with guys and I get home, my wife is like, hey, what'd you talk about? I have no idea, but we had a great time. We talked. What'd you talk about? I have no clue, but we had a good time. Um, so, so golf is one thing that I do for walking. Uh, the next one is bedtime. So when you lie down is bedtime. Uh, personally, I'm looking forward to this time with Graham when he gets older that I can go into his room and I can pray over him and I can talk to him and I can ask, hey, how was your day? What are you looking forward to tomorrow? What, what, what excites you? And I can just have those one-on-one conversations with my son. But what am I doing? I'm living authentic Christian life because he's seeing me pray over him. He's seeing me investing in him. Are we doing that with our kids? It'd be kind of weird if you do that with people you work with. That'd be kind of weird. So that one is more towards kids. But are you investing in their lives during bedtime? And the last one is the morning when I rise. So the morning time is a great way to start the day with your kids. Uh, a lot of times we overlook this time. Because what are we hurried, hurried for in the morning? We got to get to work. Uh, I got to leave the house at 6.30 to get to work by 8 o'clock. But we miss that early morning opportunity time to hang out with our kids. Um, I'll, I'll brag on Brian, um, and I learned this from him, and I hope to instill this with our kids when they get older, is every morning Brian has breakfast with his kids at the dinner table. Might not be every morning, but they have ritualistically done breakfast at the dinner table. They do a devotional with their family, and they start the day off on the right foot. Are you starting the day off on the right foot with your kids? or with your grandkids when you have them? Are you investing in that time with them early in the morning? Now the warning, the warning sign with this is don't put the things of God in confined spaces. Don't put the things of God in confined spaces. God just doesn't work inside the four walls of the church. God just doesn't work when KSBJ's on the radio. God just doesn't work when we're just reading our Bible. God works in crazy ways. God works when we're sitting, when we're walking, when we're talking, when we're lying down and in the morning. God, don't put God in a confined space. Don't put him in a box. Because when we put God in a box, we limit what God can do. The Israelites are putting God in a box. Hey, God, we're going to die out here in the desert. You can't take care of us. You didn't see what I did in Egypt? You can't take care of us. You didn't see me part the Red Sea? You can't take care of us. You're hungry? I'll provide for you. You can't take care of us. We put God in a box. We limit what he can do. So for the next few minutes, just talk about in your group the, the ways that you, that, you are, that you are showing your kids or those in your circle of influence the love of God through, through things that are outside the four walls of the church. So what are you doing outside of church to show them the love of Christ, whether your kids or those you work for? So go ahead and talk about that. All right, we'll bring it back in. You'll have some time at the very end to talk again. So we have our foundation obviously starting with Christ as our, as our cornerstone. And then as we begin to build our coaching tree, it starts with us, and God has to work in us in order, or he wants to work in us in order for us to work through him. And then we begin to build this coaching tree through our kids, and we're hoping, or those that are in our sphere of influence, we're hoping to be able to see some fruits where we're hoping to be able to extend those branches and start to see fruits. Where we see those fruits is in this second section, or this third section, and we'll look at verses 10 through 12. Then it shall come about 
when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all the things which you did not plant. Oh, I messed that up, I'm sorry. Houses full, full, houses full of all the things which you did not fill, and hoon of sinisters which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself. What you do not, for, do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So this third point is training kids or those in your circle of influence requires importing a humble and grateful heart of God's blessings. Training kids requires importing a humble and grateful heart of God's blessings. The first point under there is how we react to life's blessings and stresses is the greatest indicator of our relationship with God. How we react to God's blessings or how we react to life's blessings and stresses is the greatest indicator of our relationship with God. Be open and honest about the blessings that you receive in life. Be open and honest with the kids. Hey, God's blessed me. God's blessed us. This house we're living in, he's blessed us. This car that we get to drive, he's blessed us. This vacation we get to go on, he's blessed us. But also in those stresses, hey, we're going through this, but you know what? We serve a God that's going to get us through it. We're going through this. We serve a God that when we step out in faith in this difficulty, we're stepping out on dry ground. Why? Because we know time after time after time he's provided. It might not be what we want, but he's provided. So talk to them about the blessings and the stresses that happen in life. See, Israel, when they left Egypt, they didn't get to walk right into the promised land, did they? They wandered for 40 years. Why? Because they didn't believe. They doubted. They didn't have faith. A journey that was supposed to take two weeks took 40 years because they didn't remember the blessings and they remembered the stresses like crazy. They didn't remember what God did in their lives. The second part is share your experiences, good and bad, with your kids or those that you're over sphere of influence wise. See, they need to know that you're real. They need to know that you're normal. They need to know that you're a human being. Now don't tell them everything wrong you did because that would just not be good. But let them know where you struggled. Hey, I messed up here. For me personally, it took me 10 years to get out of college. I'm gonna tell my son, hey, it's gonna take you four. It's not gonna take you 10 because I messed up. I wasn't, good. I wasn't good, that's not proper English. I was not an excellent student in school, but you're going to be a great student because where I messed up, you're going to do better. I excelled on the athletic field, but I failed in school. You're going to do good in both. Tell them your struggles and your good experiences. The warning sign is massive in verse 12. It's huge. It should be a blinking light at us. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So that gives us a warning. One, don't give your kids everything. Some of the greatest blessings come from the hardest stresses. 
Some of the greatest blessings come from the hardest stresses. For me, it took me 10 years to get out of school. I'm going to tell my son that. But I got my master's, and my bachelor's. I have a great job. It was stressful. I met my wife. I hated it. But I'm blessed on the other side. So don't give your kids everything. We live in the Kingwood bubble, and if you go to Kingwood High School, you're going to see brand-new BMWs. You're going to see brand-new F-150s because we, we live in a, in, in a wealthy neighborhood, a wealthy area. Don't give your kids everything. Make them work for it. Make them earn it. Look at the Israelites. God said, hey, take everything. I'm going to bless you. What they do as soon as they hit the desert? God, you had not given us anything. You're not taking care of us. He tells them, you're about to go into the promised land. You're about to get all this land, these houses that you didn't build, these vineyards that you didn't plant. They're going to be yours, but they're not going to be grateful. So don't give your kids everything. Don't let them work for something because some of the greatest blessings come through the hardest stresses. So take a few minutes uh, and talk about how some of the hardest times in your life have brought the greatest blessings. So you can talk about that in your group, and we'll be done here in a few minutes. All right, so just a final word. Israelites are in the desert. They're wandering. For 40 years, they wander. They're led by Moses. Moses doesn't get to take them into the promised land. Moses goes up to a mountain, and God says, hey, this is the land which I'm going to give to them. You can't go because of some things that happened. You can read in, the, in, the, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. So God doesn't let Moses go in. He takes Moses away, brings in Joshua. Joshua leads the Israelites into Cana. Victory after victory after victory after victory. They're just cleaning house. They take Cana. They are living in the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. The land of the vineyards that they didn't plant. The houses that they didn't build. The, the, the rivers that they didn't gorge out. They're living in that prosperity. Because God gave it to them. One of the saddest passages, I think, in all of Scripture. Judges 2, verse 10. So what happens is Joshua divvies up the land to all of Israel, and then he dies. Judges 2, verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So that's the generation of Joshua. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Saddest passage in all of Scripture. All the wonder things that God did. Parting of the Red Sea. The plagues in Egypt. The manna, the quail, the water. Crossing, in the, crossing into the Cana, the battle of Jericho. You name all the battles that Joshua fought. An entire generation arose that didn't know anything about it. Why? They weren't coaching trees. They didn't build out their coaching tree. They didn't say, hey, I'm not going to focus just on me. I've got six or seven guys that I'm working on. I've got at this time, 10 kids that I'm imploring the gospel into, that I'm walking this authentic Christian life with, that I'm saying, hey, no matter what happens, God's got my back. 
These blessings we have in Cana, God gave them to us. These stresses that we're having to deal with, Harvey, it's one of those things. God's going to get us through it. They weren't building coaching trees. So my challenge to us is that for us to be a church, for us to be a body of men that become coaching tree forest, as cheesy as that sounds, that we begin the process of building our coaching trees. It doesn't matter if you're 80 or you're 18. You got people around you. You got people that you have an influence over. If you have kids, start there. If you don't have kids, start with who you work with. Because God's given us an opportunity to live out this authentic Christian life, to live out the gospel, and in doing so, we begin to plant that coaching tree. We begin to be a Bill Walsh or a Nick Saban, probably one of the greatest coaches in NFL history has a trophy named after him, and that's Vince Lombardi Trophy. If you look at his coaching tree, it's almost zero. Coach the Packers. What happens when he retired from the Packers? Went straight mediocrity. Why? Because he was focused just on his players. He was focused just on the present. He didn't have the mindset of, hey, I'm preparing for the next generation. Hey, I'm building a future. It doesn't just end with me. I'm building a coaching tree that's going to outlive me forever. So that's my prayer for us is that we start building our coaching trees. And when we do that, we then become the coach God wants us to be because we're training up the next generation for them not to forget the wonders that God's done. So we'll pray, and then we'll be done. God, we thank you for the night. Thank you for uh, just all that you've given us and all that you've done for us. Um, God, you've given us the honor of being leaders for your kingdom, to be coaches uh, for your name's sake. God, grant, grant us the strength and the endurance to begin the process of establishing our coaching trees grounded and rooted in you, that no matter what stage in life we're in or place in life we're in, that it's never too late or too early to start those coaching trees. God, bless the guys in this room. God, put people in front of their lives every day that they can be a blessing to just by the way that they act and by the way that they just live out their life, that authentic Christian life. God, pray for um, people who are struggling with health issues, that we know you're the great physician and the great healer. God, just pray that you'll just bring comfort to them. God, be with these guys over the next two weeks. Bring them back safely in two weeks and just allow us to begin to look as coaches who want to build a coaching tree and look for the future and look for those around us that we can start investing in. Lord, we love you. Holy, precious name, amen. Again, no Ironman next week. Uh, be gone. Don't be here. We won't be here. Uh, and if you've missed a week or if you know somebody who has missed a week, all of these uh, talks are on iTunes. Um, so if you just look up Ironman North Campus, you'll see all of the spring semester last year, and then all the ones we've done so far. So thank y'all for being here. Y'all have a great night.